Chapter 16. You're gonna miss me. There was a coaster from Ernie Steele's stuck to the refrigerator door when I came home from work that morning. She'd scrawled words across it in red marker. Starve myself today. Then a tight green velvet dress for master and slave. XX. I smiled to myself as I filled a glass half full of tap water and grabbed a spoon from the drawer. She had pre-programmed the coffee maker to start at 8.45 a.m., and the whole apartment smelled like heaven. I poured myself a cup. I crept into the room quietly so as not to wake her. I moved a pile of clothes from the chair I got her on her last birthday. It was a hard plastic monstrosity in the shape of a giant black hand that was infinitely uncomfortable, but she loved it. I put it on layaway and chipped away at the payments 20 bucks at a time. I picked it up only an hour before her surprise party at the Comet and carried it, much to the driver's chagrin, on the bus from Fremont to Capitol Hill. I had no wrapping paper or greeting card, of course. I lifted it over my head and carried it through the crowded bar and plopped it down next to her at our regular table. She almost burst into tears. I'd never seen her so happy. I took off my jacket, sat in the giant palm, and pulled the needles and balloons of dope out of my inside pocket, the one we referred to as the shoplifting pocket. Carrie's eyes sprung open when I flicked open my Zippo and placed it under the spoon. What you doing? She said in that sweet little girl voice that was strictly reserved for early mornings. Cooking breakfast, my dear. Yes, I was curious about Otis's fentanyl, but there was also the fringe benefit of a diversion tactic. I had been missing in action for a couple of days, and I was rolling the dice on the potency of her recent shock treatments. Over the past few months, I had been granted immunity for more than a few nasty things I had said or done just because the events had simply disappeared. Her mind's own redacted inventory of my misdeeds and malevolence was working in my favor. Most men brought home roses and candy as a peace offering. I brought narcotics. Carrie gave a long, erotic stretch and then extended her arm in my direction. I unbuckled my belt and knelt by the bed. I fashioned the belt into a noose, slipped it over her forearm, and tightened it below her bicep. She squeezed her fist, and the veins on her pale arm rose to the occasion. I bent down and touched my target with the tip of my tongue and playfully kissed it. I mustered my best doctoral bedside manner and whispered, You might feel a little prick. Uh, okay, but can we do the drugs first? She shot back in the same whisper. I deserve that for throwing such a slow pitch to a wise ass of her caliber. The brand new needle slid easily into her favorite vein. I pulled back the plunger and a crimson cloud overpowered the clear liquid in the syringe. Then I slowly pressed it back down, sending the solution into her system. She gave a little cough, closed her eyes, and smiled her approval. Sweet Christ, she had me. What I really wanted most in this life was to scoop this dream up in my arms and protect her from the cold world outside. Her face was so angelic and innocent before the ever-present red lipstick and mascara was applied. 
the ghost of the little girl she once was, before she had forsaken the violin for a Les Paul Jr., before she had met me. Seven years earlier, and another world away, I was lighting a cigarette behind a little rock and roll dive called the Mason Jar in Phoenix, Arizona. I'd kicked open the back door, hoping to escape the sweltering heat of the bar, and had succeeded in stumbling into the sweltering heat of the parking lot. She was sitting on the hood of a car with her friends, drinking a beer from a paper bag. I was somewhere past $8 deep into the bar's nightly drink special, Franco's 75-cent kamikazes. Somewhere muffled by the cinder-block walls of the mason jar, Tex and the horseheads were falling apart on stage, scoring our fateful meeting. We had been exchanging glances the entire show. Full of vodka gallantry and lacking anything that resembled a smooth opening line, I simply walked up, leaned into her, and kissed her deeply. She didn't seem to object, and her friends scurried away. She grabbed my shirt, held me at arm's length long enough to take a long pull on her beer can, tossed it over her shoulder, and pulled me back in for more. I fell into her groping hands, her piranha kisses, her gravelly purr and powder white skin. She was a mad, fire-engine, red-dyed mess shooting in every direction. It was a hurricane of youthful indiscretion on the hood of an enormous and dusty Oldsmobile. A car I assumed was hers until a patron from the neighboring bar ventured out long enough to offer a suggestion. Uh, you faggots wanna get the fuck off my car? I grabbed her by the waist, tossed her over my shoulder, and carried her through the back door of the mason jar. Her friends were waiting patiently at a table. My friends had ditched me. Big spender that I was, I bought a round of specials for the table and thus gained acceptance into their tribe. The six of us piled into a pinto. A big gulp cup full of Jack Daniels and just enough Coke to call it a Jack and Coke was passed around. Wild gift blasted out of the one working speaker. With the window rolled down and all 90 pounds of Miss Finch sitting in my lap, I drifted off into oblivion. Get up! A woman's voice shrieked. For a split second, I thought I was in my own room. The walls were covered with the same Xerox mementos of Social Distortion, X, and JFA shows. The air was filled with the same Novena candle wax and dirty sock smell. The floor was piled with the same masses of records and books. Get your ass up! There was a sudden sharp pain in my ribs. I sat up. I was on a futon on the floor with Carrie lying next to me and a hysterical middle-aged woman standing over us, kicking me for a second time in the back. Motherfuck! I screamed, trying to get a look at my attacker and my situation. Carrie sat up next to me, startled, and covered herself with the sheet. Beautiful. Even more so when she leaned forward and defiantly kissed me. Good morning, monster, she said sweetly. I was still drunk, but mainly I was in shock. The screaming woman standing over me was reacting as if I was a demon who had fallen from the sky to terrorize a toddler instead of just a guy her daughter brought home from a bar. I needed her shrill screech to cease. I needed her to relax. I needed her to take a breath. But mostly, I needed her to realize that I was just another red-blooded, alcohol-fueled 21-year-old dumbass, and her precious angel was, She is 14 years old! The woman screamed, Shit. 
Lady, please, I begged. In spite of appearances, I am a gentleman, but if you kick me one more time, I swear to God I will... Her shoe landed viciously in my ribs again. She had called my bluff. I turned to Carrie and mouthed the words, I'm sorry. Kiss me again, she said, putting her head on my shoulder. At the risk of getting this harpy's sensible shoe jammed up my ass, I obliged her. I was fully dressed. After all, no harm, no foul should have been the call. But Mom didn't quite see it that way. I was escorted unceremoniously to the front door by the ear. Don't you ever show your goddamn face around here again! She spat at me. I sat on the curb and put my socks and boots on. It was already a hundred degrees out. I had no shades, no money, and no idea where I was. It looked like an upscale neighborhood, which meant I was far from home. I put my head between my knees and dry heaved. An old pickup truck with several lawnmowers in the back drove by slowly. One of the cowboys inside yelled, Devo! and pitched a full Coors can at me. Luckily, he was a poor marksman because I wouldn't have had the wherewithal to duck had it been necessary. As I was getting up to leave, I heard the screen door slam behind me. Carrie ran out and handed me a folded scrap of paper. Then without a word, she turned and darted back inside. I looked down both sides of the street. It couldn't have mattered less. Fuck it, I mumbled and started walking. When I was out of eyeshot of the house, I opened the note. In blue ink on lined notebook paper, she wrote, I have a crush on you. I folded the piece of paper and stuck it in my wallet, where it remains to this day. I turned my attention back to the spoon and sucked the remaining dope into the needle, taking it with me to the bathroom to shower off another lovely evening at the porn shop. I kicked off my boots and stripped off my jacket and shirt while the water warmed up. I stood over the sink and hit a vein in my wrist. I stretched and waited for the blissful cloud of dope to cover me. Carrie's alarm clock began to buzz. I exhaled as the warmth hit my lungs. I watched in the mirror as my pupils all but disappeared. I gripped the sink to steady myself. This was strong shit, much stronger than I usually got. My legs turned to jelly beneath me. My vision went dark. Panic set in. Carrie, you okay? I called through the door. I tore open the door. Her skin was blue. Not blue, as in some medical parlance for pale. It was blue like a fucking blue thing. Like a crayon or a can of paint. She hadn't moved. Her eyes were closed, her mouth agape. Carrie? I pulled the sheet back. She was cold. Fuck. Fuck. She'd finally gotten her wish. Baby, say something. Please, please, please say something. I looked at the phone on the desk. No. I promised. I promised, I promised. Above the desk was a framed photo that appeared in Melody Maker magazine the year before. In it, she was topless, holding her breasts with her hands, the words, Do Not Resuscitate written across her chest and marker. I threw the alarm clock against the wall. 
I dropped to my knees by the bed and took her in my arms. I felt her wrist for a pulse, but my own heart was thumping so hard I couldn't tell if it was hers or mine. Now that the clock was silenced, my staccato breathing drowned out any other sound in the room. She would want me to hold her until it was too late. She would want me to hold her till it was too late. I sat on the bed, rocking her in my arms. She would want me to hold her until it was too late. I fucking promised. I sat on the steps outside and tried to light a cigarette. My hands were shaking too much to strike a match. I thought about how I didn't know the difference between right and wrong anymore. Or whether I ever did at all. I thought about when I came home from work last year on Christmas morning to find her in bed with a plastic bag over her head. I took off my boots and crawled into bed with her even though the mattress was soaked with piss. I untied the string she had used to secure the bag around her neck and pulled it off her. Not today, my dear, I whispered. She rolled over facing the wall and sobbed. I held her in my arms until we both fell asleep. The next day, we pooled the Christmas money our parents had sent us and bought a new bed. I watched two police cars pull in behind the fire truck and the ambulance. They'd certainly want to speak with me. The female EMT asked me to clear out. There wasn't enough room in our tiny studio apartment for all of them, plus their oxygen tanks, defibrillator, and the stretcher. I'd used all my junior lifeguard training. Tilt the head back, pinch the nose, blow until you saw the victim's chest rise, repeat. But now it's time for the professionals to take over. Get the fuck off me! Was the first sign of life I heard. 